It's Monday, December 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Democrats and Republicans have reached a compromise deal on a new coronavirus stimulus package that will give Americans a direct payment of $600 and enhanced unemployment benefits of $300 per week. In other news, President Trump has been downplaying the seriousness of a hack of several government agencies, saying it could have been China, despite experts and even Mike Pompeo saying it was clearly Russia. And the effort to recall the governor of California is gaining some steam. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for a full breakdown. Next, the disruption that the pandemic has caused to the education system has ranged from kids having to transition to remote learning, parents experiencing burnout trying to help their kids learn and balance work life, but it has also caused a teacher shortage. Early retirements and quarantines are forcing some school administrators to recruit parents as substitute teachers, increase class sizes, and even use bus drivers to babysit classrooms. Arizona in particular has been hit hard by a shortage of teachers, and many say that educational achievement has suffered because of it. Valerie Borline, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. At this point, we're down to the last few differences that stand between struggling Americans and their major rescue package they need and deserve. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. It seems like Republicans and Democrats have reached a compromise on a new stimulus package. It's going to be closer to $900 billion. We're looking at direct payments of $600 to Americans. And then for those that are unemployed, $300 a week. Ginger, what else do we know about uh, about this bill that, that could be coming soon? We think it'll pass probably on Monday. They might not be able to have it done Sunday night. So uh, I know we're sort of talking in the future, right. um, but but uh, it, with a little bit of un- uncertainty here. But it does appear that members of the Senate and the House have agreed to this deal. As you said, is going to get folks another round of stimulus checks, uh, the same sort of income caps that applied before. So if you didn't get one last time, you're probably not getting one this time. If you got one last time, Time, you're probably getting one this time. Um, there is some money in there for small businesses. There's a very little amount in there for restaurants. They, the restaurants have said that it wasn't enough, but they, there is some money for restaurants. Um, and as you said, the states and local governments say that they really need some more money. And so there is some money in there to help pay for vaccine distributions, which has been left for the states to figure out, not the federal government. But it's not as much money as the states and the local governments had hoped for. It also doesn't include what was Mitch McConnell's top priority, which is liability protections for businesses that continue to operate in the pandemic. And so they're all sort of hopeful that maybe next year when President Biden takes over, they might be able to negotiate some kind of deal that would include that liability and that state and local government money. This uh, coronavirus stimulus package is also going to be paired up with a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill. There's still a little back and forth on that, I believe, but uh, they're, they're expecting to get it all done, hopefully before Christmas. Hopefully. So the government would shut down on Sunday night if they don't have what they call a short-term CR because Um, As you said, it's been paired with this omnibus bill uh, that's funding government. Uh, Again, sort of speaking in the future, we don't expect the government to shut down. 
they appear to be moving to sort of get this all done, get it all finished so they can go home and have Christmas and New Year's and come back and start a new Congress in January and then a new president later in the month. Let's move on to this uh, hack that we heard about this past week. It's something that had been going on for months. They think as early as March, several government agencies had been hacked. The Pentagon, the Treasury, uh, National Institutes of Health, Homeland Security. All the experts believe that it was Russian intelligence who did this. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also said the same. And then comes President Trump and says, hey, you never know. It could have been China. Uh, he downplayed the whole thing, saying the media is making it worse uh, than it actually was. But these hackers were in these systems for months. There's a lot of criticism against the president. One, not believing his officials as usual, and then also not wanting to criticize Russia. As you said, this is sort of one of the most large-scale hacks that we've seen of the federal government. This is really sensitive information. This is, I don't even know that we have a full understanding yet of what type and the scope of the information that these hackers had access to. And you're right, the private security firm that was involved in this hack, as well as federal government officials have said this was a Russian hack. The Russians are behind this. And Senator Mitt Romney was on television Sunday morning and sort of had an interesting response. He said, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze the president, but it seems as if he just thinks that any admission that Russia has done anything would speak ill of him, that it would be taken as him being weak or failing on his part. And for that reason, he sort of refuses to acknowledge that Russia could be responsible for anything, but happy to be the guy fighting with China. So he keeps blaming China. <laughs> right. um, but for all the evidence that we have at this point, it's the Russians that was behind this hack as as they've done before uh, in utilizing a pretty sophisticated cyber operation. The president also said that uh, voting machines could have been impacted by this hack, <laughs> you know, obviously continuing on his theme of elect the election being stolen. But, yeah, none of that has been borne out. And, and you're right, compl uh, you know, about how much we don't necessarily know yet uh, about what has been infiltrated, you know, what information they uh, were able to get. I know emails were always a big source of, of things that they want to get their hands on. So uh, we're going to be looking at this for some time to come. But in the meantime, the president... You know, just kind of muddying the waters on all that. And continuing on the president, there was a meeting at the White House about the election and, and the fraud, as he calls it. It was a pretty contentious meeting. There was talks of possibly naming uh, lawyer Sidney Powell to be a special counsel looking into his election loss. There was talk about seizing voting machines so they can look into them. Uh, there was talk about declaring martial law if they had to. All sorts of crazy things. Michael Flynn was at this meeting. What was going on at, at the White House on Friday? So what we understand, there was this meeting and a big argument erupted as they started or the president started entertaining the idea of declaring martial law in order to have another election, a redo of the November election conducted wow. that would be overseen by the U.S. military. He's also talked, as you said, about appointing Sidney Powell, who has been sort of one of the big flag bearers of the conspiracy theory efforts from the president to be a special counsel, the thinking being that even if he leaves office on January 20th, she could continue to investigate and could sort of redeem him in the long run. Um, look, the president could try, although from what we understand, a special counsel has to be named by the attorney general and the attorney general was 
the, the acting, the new acting or incoming acting attorney general who replaced Bill Barr was asked last week and he sort of suggested uh, that he thought things were just fine the way they are, which is not having a special counsel. Right. Uh, I, and, and I think it's important to remember that we have a pretty robust system of guardrails and checks and balances. And you can't just declare martial law and ask for a new election. Our elections are held on a state level. You would need courts to compel people. It is unlikely that any of this would happen. And likely the shouting might have been because someone was trying to explain that to the president. The last thing I want to talk about real quick, going back to uh, states, you know, there's this interesting thing happening in California. There's growing support in the effort to recall the governor there, Governor Gavin Newsom. California has a lot of problems with it right now. Huge, huge COVID numbers, rising unemployment the governor's decision to close down outdoor dining was a blow to a lot of local businesses and, and people really were up in arms about all that stuff. So now this campaign to recall them has a little bit more than half of the signatures that they need. They have about 844,000 signatures. They need about 1.5 million. I, I'm curious, is, uh, is this really just very vocal opponents or is there a really uh, uprising of support for the effort to recall him? Think about this. A million signatures seems like a lot, but in a state as large as California, it's not. Um, it's not an impossible barrier to overcome. And so um, he has to take this seriously. There has been a previous recall, as you remember, of a California governor. Yeah. Um, these efforts uh, shouldn't be ignored as, as fringe. And I think you're right. There's a lot of frustration in California about how the COVID response is being handled. It's a big state. There's a lot of variation between the city and the more rural parts of the state. Uniform rules across are being met with resistance pretty much across the state. And you can look at L.A. County as an example of the divisions. Um, L.A. County shut down um, outdoor dining and the city of Pasadena opted to keep theirs open, yeah. even though they're in the county. Uh, just lots of division in the state. And I think that um, the unhappiness, uh, if you show someone outside the grocery store a petition to sign, you're going to get signatures. And for that reason, I think Gavin Newsom has to take this very seriously and consider his political future and how he's handling it. They have all the way until March to gather the signatures. And as you mentioned, it's really not that many signatures they have left to go. So, I mean, totally doable there. But I tell you, you know, I live in California when the decision came down for outdoor dining to close. You know, this was the last hope of so many restaurants. That's when everybody really flipped the switch and really started campaigning against them because they felt like they were being scapegoated. You know, it's it's a, a pretty intense situation there. And then, you know, you catch the governor at a fancy restaurant, the French Laundry, having dinner with friends and stuff. And it the, that hypocrisy smacks, you know, and people get really angry about all that. So it, it's an interesting thing seeing how, how it's going there. Who, who knows how far it will go, but uh, something definitely to watch. So we'll keep an eye out. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. But the building is the same size. The responsibilities are the same, if not more. And because of physical social distance, teachers can have fewer kids in the classroom. So in some ways, they're stretched thinner. Joining us now is Valerie Borline, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Valerie. Glad to be here. We've been checking in periodically, obviously, with our teachers as the pandemic continues to go on. We know how big of a disruptor the pandemic has already been to the school system, students 
learning in class, students learning at home remotely. It's been quite a mess stopping classes because of rising cases. It's all over the place. But we're also seeing that there's a big teacher shortage out there. And school districts are having to get really creative, I guess you would say, in how to fill some of those seats, recruiting parents, bus drivers to babysit classrooms. There's really this all-hands-on-deck type of mode for a lot of school systems out there right now. So, Valerie, you wrote a pretty comprehensive article about what's going on. Tell us what we're seeing with this teacher shortage. You really can't overstate the disruption that's happening in K-12 and all education in this country, particularly in the public schools. You know, it was one thing in the spring to have that rush of adrenaline and we're going to make virtual learning work and get through the spring. And now as the pandemic drags on into its ninth month, you're seeing parents frustrated, kids not learning as much as they should have by now, and teachers really starting to burn out. And all the disruption that you're talking about is adding up to a real um, difficult working environment for teachers, and you're seeing people leave the profession. You're also seeing commonly in many school districts that there are not enough teachers in the building to hold class, whether because they're quarantining or what have you. So it really, the staffing crunch in American schools is something you can't underestimate. Back to the teachers, you know, the staffing crunch, really the teachers that stay behind, then those are the ones that get really fatigued by the whole thing. They're the ones that get the burnout of the whole thing. And a lot of the teachers and administrators I spoke with say exactly that. Like, it's tough now. It's tough for teachers to have to sub out for another teacher during their planning time, for example. But what's really tough is the burnout factor and whether that teachers will stay in the field or potentially retire early. And also, one thing to think about is whether what's happening in the school system entices young people to go into teaching. They see what's happening firsthand, and will they decide to go that route, seeing how tough it is for their own teachers that they admire and and in some cases really see being overwhelmed. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, public school employment in November was down 8.7% from February. This is the lowest level since 2000. And you guys have a nice little graph that's showing the progression of employment. Mm -hmm. And you just see that sharp drop earlier this year and throughout the pandemic. Arizona has shown a real stark contrast in all of this. They've been heavily impacted by this. I thought that the statistic from the Bureau of Labor Statistics was really eye-opening. If you think about it, schools have almost 9% fewer people in the building, but the building's the same size. The responsibilities are the same, if not more. And because of physical social distance, Teachers can have fewer kids in the classroom, so in some ways they're stretched thinner. So what really struck me visiting some schools was how being off, having 9% fewer people in the building taxes the others that are there. And to your point about Arizona, yes, I think this is happening in pockets all across the country. And Arizona certainly is one that educators I talked to, including this head of state superintendent, just said, yeah, it's a crisis for us. Let's get a little deeper in Arizona. They weren't able to hire traditionally certified teachers for 78% of some open positions that they had. So they had to get creative. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were filled by emergency substitutes. You know, obviously you get people from other counties. Student teachers were a big source of uh, plugging Mm -hmm. that hole there. And then beyond that, they're urging parents, people with, you know, they reduced some of the requirements. So there are people with high school diplomas can take an online course and then be certified for emergency substitutes. So they're getting very creative with how to fill a lot of these positions. If you think about it, they're required to have, you know, not just legally, but, you know, morally, they're educators. They want to educate. They need to have 
teachers in the rooms virtually or physically. So, but they're having to get really creative to make that happen. So the relaxing around standards is a theme you hear all over the country. Iowa and Missouri, for example, lowered the requirements to be an emergency substitute. In Atlanta, you could be 20 years old. And we talked to some kids that were 20 years old and not teachers, but physically in the, in the classroom. So I think it's one of those things Arizona has had is an example of a state that's had a teacher shortage building for a number of years. You know, as you might remember, the Red for Ed protest of 2018 really started in Phoenix and, and kind of blossomed out in other places around the country. So the teacher shortage, comparatively low teacher pay there, the really high ratio of students to teachers, there's like 23 and a half students per teacher in Arizona compared to 16 per kids per teacher nationally. So there are just a lot of pressure points they're building up. And then the, the combination of that, that wave of teacher shortage building, crashing up against the wave of the pandemic, it's really created a tough situation in many, many Arizona schools. You have a lot of examples in the article. They're all very good. But I wanted to focus a little bit, if you can, on Principal Christine Hollingsworth. This is mm-hmm. in Phoenix. And they're having severe staff shortages there. She was up uh, until, you know, early in the morning trying to find a substitute teacher. In many (laughs) cases, she's stepping in to help teach classes. Other teachers are combining classes. Tell us a little bit about how they're approaching this. One of the things that was really amazing being around Principal Hollingsworth was just how she was one of the ones who kept saying, it's all hands on deck. We're figuring it out as we go because we have to. But I should note that just how cheerful, how positive she was, how much she loved seeing even the small cohort of students that was able to be in the building. She was so happy to see them and look through their mask and say, hey, I can see I can see your smile under there. So, I, you know, I would say that teachers are really and administrators are trying to make the best of a, of a really tough situation. But the day that I spent some time with her, she was having a hard time finding a substitute. There's nationwide pressure on substitute teachers, and there's just not enough of them. And she couldn't find a substitute for her art teacher, even though she'd been trying. She was up at four that morning trying to find someone and figure out how she was going to handle it. And I was like, well, gosh, you were up at four and it's it's eight, school's starting. She's like, I'm up at four every day <laughs> this year. And I think that's part of the reality is that, that we were talking about earlier. It's just as this stretches on, kind of where are we headed? Is this the new normal for schools is, is constant change every day. It has been for nine months. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Miss Hollingsworth went onto this uh, elementary school database to see if she can fill a bunch of these open seats. And I guess they only got five applicants for dozens of teaching jobs. This is across 32 different elementary schools. So, I mean, that's just really kind of illustrates how short this thing is. And we were talking about other creative options. You know, sometimes a teacher will come on and say, man, this is just not for me anymore. And then they quit within the first couple of weeks or so. And that was kind of another recurring theme that a lot of people were experiencing. Mm-hmm. So it's just a tough time overall. And obviously we need more funding for these programs, for the teachers. It's just tough all around, really, with the pandemic. It's a difficult situation for online learning and hybrid learning all around, like you said. I will um, point out that the pressure in schools is more intense in some places than others, right? So in rural areas, for example, it's really hard right now to get teachers to fill jobs. But in cities where there's good quality of living and, you know, maybe, you know, support for teachers in schools, you, you might have far more applicants for jobs. So it's uneven, but I think there is definitely pressure on the teacher supply in many, many places nationwide. Valerie Borline, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, sure. Thanks so much for having me.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.